Welcome, everyone. I wanted to also introduce my guest, Alex Kruglov. He is a former classmate, uh, and, and he's also, more importantly, a former executive at Hulu. And in this segment, we're going to discuss what you as an author need to do in order to sell your content to Hulu. We're going to try to get into a lot of detailed information around that. And uh, Alex, why don't you uh, take it away and give a much more detailed uh, background about why you are uniquely qualified to answer this uh, amorphous question for many people who are, who are out there and uh, want to know. Thanks for having me, Sean. Since you and I met, we've both grown beards, and unfortunately, we have far too much gray, so we're revealing our age. Uh, we've known each other for a very long time. Um, I was part of Hulu's founding team, so I joined Hulu in 2007 before it existed. Um, it was just named, like, literally days before I joined, and it launched about four or five months after um, I joined as a direct-to-consumer uh, service. So I was deeply unqualified for the role that I had, which was initially co-head and eventually and eventually head of content acquisition. So Hulu Hulu started out as a distributor of third-party programming, and it expanded into original programming, um, which was started when I was there, uh, which I you know I led. But then it continued for quite some time uh, and is now flourishing. You know. Emmy winning and all that good stuff, which kind of, you know, much of it has happened after I left. So to some extent, I'm not qualified in that I haven't been there for a while, but I'm still, you know, pretty closely connected uh, to that world. And uh, as well as, you know, my former colleagues uh, are now uh, running Warner Media and, uh, and are at places like Peacock and Netflix and a variety of uh, other places, folks that I've hired, folks that I work with. Um, so it's, it's the, you know, the world has sort of uh, expanded, but also this, uh, uh, converged uh, at the same time. Where it used to be that the Hulus of the world uh, were more akin to uh, YouTube uh, as far as kind of digital distribution platforms uh, where uh, they didn't really have budgets to finance uh, original production. Whereas the Hulu of today is much more similar to Showtime, HBO, Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV, FX, uh, Disney Plus, uh, you name it. So to uh, uh, answer the question that you that you ask, which is how does one get their story told uh, in a visual setting for a hefty budget, which is essentially a way to rephrase your question, which is how do you get your show on Hulu? Uh, there are multiple ways, but the, the simple answer is that uh, it's a supply and demand market. So uh, those who are uh, those who have a direct-to-consumer service, those who are in the business of uh, of distributing films and TV shows, they're heavily motivated and incentivized to have hits and also to have volume uh, of, of product that people want to see. They want to, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they want to pay as little as possible for it. But because of the way the market is set up, they're actually willing to pay uh, a significant premium if they feel that the content can be um, can be the, the kind of stuff that can that can give them clout, whether it's by winning awards or by getting uh, a lot of viewership. And sometimes those are two different things. So sometimes the kind of content that gets you awards is the stuff that nobody watches. And the kind of stuff that gets you viewership is the kind of stuff that all the critics trash, right? And so, uh, you know, the Kardashians are uh, a very, very major part of the Comcast uh, ecosystem, but they're not, uh, their show was not winning them uh, uh, was not winning them uh, awards. I wrote a, a, an opinion piece 
a while back with a friend of mine named Matthew Ball, and we talked about uh, how Nickelback is one of the best-selling bands uh, of the 21st century, uh, but it's not on anybody's top 10, 50, or 500 list. And uh, 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 Dr. Pimple Popper is one of the top-rated uh, series uh, on television. So, so, so there's this there's this concept of like what is pulling an audience in, right? Which is around either prestige or you know, the fact that your friends are talking about it. The Bachelor is in the, is in the latter category. Word uh, about um, right. Handmaid's Tale is in the for, is in the former category, and then and then there's you know so that's that's pulling a subscriber in. And then the other question is what is keeping a subscriber from unsubscribing? And that so if you think about Discovery uh, Television, a lot of non-scripted programming, a lot of the times you don't subscribe uh, in order to watch whether it's food shows or you know reality shows, but you actually stick around to watch them because they're a really good way to pass the time. So, so that's just kind of a general framework for how, how these people think and what's kind of top of mind to them. Now let's talk reality. There is a supply and demand, despite, despite the, the position that most independent writers are in, there's a supply and demand imbalance that is heavily in favor of the content creators, not in, in, in favor of the content buyers. So there are there is a very small number, at least from a perception standpoint, of content creators who can make the kind of television that will draw an audience in and who know how to run a show, which essentially means being a CEO of a 500 person team that is making, you know, uh, a six to 10 episode uh, per season show. It's massive cast uh, production uh, writers room. All of that stuff is really, really hard to do. And so the J.J. The, the Abramses of the world, the Issa Rays of the world, uh, these people are, you know, they have uh, very, very hefty uh, uh, sums of money that they're being paid um, for being able to kind of bring shows in and also for de-risking the likelihood that the show isn't just a good idea, but something that can get made and can get right. at, and, and can actually make it onto air uh, and look good. Um, and uh, nobody ever sets out, by the way, to make a bad show. Uh, it just it kind of works out that way because of just the reality of how hard it is uh, to do it. It's, it's, it's actually, as you know, there's a lot of really bad movies but it's a lot easier to make a movie than it is to make a TV show because you got to keep making it, you know, uh, uh, episode after episode, season after season, um, and so on. So, so the, the so if you can c come in with with a pitch that puts together a high a, a good idea. So, right? so let's 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 back up real quick. So, sure. So let, I, I want to make sure that I segment the audience here because there's there's going to be <laughs> there's going to be a lot of folks who you know, or screenwriters in Hollywood and things like that. This, this part of the, sh of the show is not for them. This, this part of the show is, is for someone who is a novelist or totally. somebody or somebody like me who published an anthology and wants to, you know, make a, a show on net. Again, I'm not saying I want to, I'm just someone similar who did something like Weird World War Three and wants to make an anthology show mm -hmm. for Netflix or Hulu? Yes. So, but with no context whatsoever. Now, I can't say that because I I know you, but I haven't badgered you or anything like that. Um, but for someone with no contact whatsoever, how do they break into this process? Yeah. Uh, and then, so like, what what is like the what do the stages look like? Do they need to partner with somebody more experienced? Yeah. How do they, who should, like, where do they look for someone to reach out to? Is that the reality is that you need an in. So it, right. it is not a meritocratic system where if you just happen to have written the, the, the best book based on some objective basis, uh, you win. So um, 
there's a there's a there's a few ways to kind of you know to to break through the clutter because there's a there's a massive amount of incoming uh, submissions that are not even read because as you know unsolicited uh, submissions are for legal reasons uh, nobody reads them because uh, they're concerned about getting sued in case there's some something similar so they will always reject anything that is unsolicited um, so what are the ways to break through the clutter number one have a really you know sell a lot of books <laughs> so if you sell a lot of books. Uh, there's a lot of people who are paid to look at the 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 the, vol the volumetric trends of book selling and who are aggressively going after uh, books, including unpublished uh, so so manuscripts that are not yet uh, out, uh, because uh, there's there tends to be a war for to take these off the shelves now. Let me let me be clear. That doesn't mean your show gets made. It just means that somebody pays you a small amount of money for an, an 18-month option. Uh, that's that's all it is. But still, that's interest, and that means that you now have representatives uh, who are you know who are kind of getting uh, in business with you. So that's number one. Number so, two. So so, so I'm going to keep this super basic. So for people, yeah. I know what an option is. You know what an option are. An option is nothing more than uh, somebody saying you cannot sell this to somebody else for the period of time that an option lasts. During that time period, I'm going to try to make something out of this thing. If I succeed, the option extends and it becomes a thing. If I fail, which 99% of them do, then you get your rights uh, back. So as a seller, you want the option to be as short as humanly possible and you want to get as much as paid as much as possible for it. So, so, in, so in terms of ranges, if there is any, any range, it's prob there's probably not, it's probably all over the place, but um, what is kind of the the length, the kind of the, if you take kind of the, you know, kind of middle 50%, right? Yeah. Where, where, the, where the bulge of that normal curve is. What's the range and kind of duration from X months to Y months? And 18 months is, 18 months would be in the middle of the bell curve. Um, less than that probably means you have leverage uh, as a seller. More than that means that somebody has a lot of leverage over you or that you just have a very bad uh, that's actually very, that's actually very, very insight. That's a very insightful, like that's not something that, you know, somebody fresh in the industry would understand that's, that's yeah, yeah yeah i mean about, in, in a back and forth they will tell you i need three years and you will tell them why the hell do you need three years they'll say because i you know it takes a long time to do a thing and and, and whereas the reality is the way the option agreement is structured is that as long as they move it to another level like there's some kind of a buyer there's some kind of a thing that happens to it it automatically extends anyway so um, so what they, but what they usually do is they just take it off the table. And the problem for you as a writer is if somebody bought your, uh, uh, an option on your book and then nothing happens, your book is no longer interesting or relevant. Uh, it becomes right. stale. So unless you have a second publishing or unless a paperback version comes out or whatever else, you're kind of shit out of luck. So you want this period to be as short as possible. And you also, and the reason you want to get paid as much as possible is not for the money. It's really so that they have a reason to work hard for you because right. they shelled out real money. So, so if they wrote you a hundred dollar check for the option, you know, of course it's, 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 it's a ridiculously small amount, but that's not the problem. The problem is that they're like, who cares? You know, whatever, it's a hundred bucks. As opposed to like, whereas if they wrote you a $25,000 or $50,000 check for the option, well, even though it's recoupable, they're like, well, shit, I better work hard. Otherwise, I just lost twenty five grand, right? It's real money. Yep. And what's, what is, so we have the duration kind of range we just talked about. What about 
you know, kind of the range and what you might get for an initial option. It sounds like it can it's probably... be, it can be very small amount. Like it can be as little as, you know, 50 bucks or a hundred bucks. Like, you know, sometimes it's just, you need to pay something. Otherwise the option, otherwise the agreement doesn't work, but it can be right. very, very small amounts. Whereas if you're Stephen King, you know, it can be well over a million dollars. Right. So, so it's, it really depends. There's not a good answer. There's not, not a good way to answer that question. Okay. All right. So we kind of, have the option piece. So for somebody who's like a novelist, uh, you know, internal teams at like Hulu and Netflix are looking at, I'm assuming book scan numbers, if they're looking less at- so, Less so Hulu, Netflix, more a producer. So generally it, the, the person who will buy it will be a producer or a production company. Um, and then what they will do uh, is they package it. So packaging means that they put a team together that's not you. So no offense to all of you and your novelist friends, but for the most part, unless you know, unless you are uh, one of the very small, rare exceptions that has kind of transformed and gone back and forth between TV and film, uh, generally they want to find a different writer uh, uh, to actually put together a script, script. Uh, or yeah. a bible for your series, and you want to atta attach uh, big names. Attach means that they are saying that they will do it, subject to a variety of different. Uh, it, it's not even it's not even a legal agreement. So an attachment is basically just says such and such, read the book, likes it, and want to star in it. And so uh, so the way to, let me go, I'll go back in time in a second, but generally the way to sell a show is yeah. to make it attractive. <laughs> the way to make a show attractive is to have a high quality piece of intellectual property, which is the book itself, right? That That's a small part of it. The big part of it is that you have talent attached that that can move dollars. So whether it's a writer that's in-demand high-profile writer who has either already made TV shows or has at least been in the writing room in a popular TV show that did well, um, that uh, it's talent, so star, uh, you know, big star, um, uh, and you know, directors and a variety of, of and production company, big producer, all of those make a package uh, attractive. That's generally kind of how it works. Now, mm -hmm. as a no, as a as a no name in Hollywood, no name writer, how do you get into all of that? Well, one is to have a huge hit, right? That's one way to do it. Another way is to get representatives. So what are representatives? Representatives are people who uh, work on your behalf. Uh, there are three categories of representatives. There is a lawyer, uh, an agent, and a manager. So, um, and I think most of your, your, the people watching this know what a lawyer does. Uh, the difference between an agent and a manager is, is, is kind of random and vague, but there's legal reasons why uh, an agent, so an agent can't produce and a manager can't negotiate agreements. That's generally kind of how it goes. And a lawyer, ironically, a lawyer can actually theoretically do both. So there are some uh, there are some lawyers that actually do the job of a manager and agent and, and vice versa. And the other thing is that if you are, so a friend of mine, actually a classmate of, of ours is a, is a very successful uh, nonfiction uh, writer uh, uh, who's sold a lot of books and also has done some ghostwriting. And he's read my- Is that Philip? Yes. So, and, and yeah. he's read by, by by William Morris, which is a you know extremely endeavor, prestigious agency. But on the literary side, crossing over into film is not that easy for him because even though the agency uh, uh, represents plenty of showrunners and 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 and, and uh, uh, screenwriters and whatever else, uh, it's not it's a non-trivial transition. So just because you have a fancy book agent doesn't necessarily mean that you have an easy path into a television. Um, and film. And, and again, in his case, he was, you know, he was doing specifically work directly for TV. 
selling an option to your book is a different story, but you then have to kind of hand it off and let other people do the work uh, for you if you have a fancy agent. Whereas if you are a fancy novelist and then you separately wrote a screenplay that's unrelated to your fancy novelist work, you're, you now have kind of brought yourself down to the level of any other uh, new screenwriter and you have to compete on the merits of that script just the same way that everybody uh, else does, if that makes sense. Okay. So, so now, so let's say that you've done all of this. So you have your reps, you have uh, your, uh, the, the person, somebody optioned your book and they've put together a package around your book. So now- Well, you... let's, let, let, let's step back. So, so sure. how, do you, how do you get to the point? So for most of the audience, getting an agent, that's pretty understandable. Um, sometimes they use lawyers, sometimes they don't, but the manager piece, how does- a, a novelist attract it because the manager is the one who's, who would kind of bring in the production company and no no not necessarily no. not necessarily uh, there's really no difference between an agent and a manager when it comes to intros so you just want to get to somebody who is connected it can be a lawyer too so if your lawyer uh happens to work for a for, for a firm that that is you know that is uh heavily present in media all they have to do is just call over uh, a different you know somebody whose office is next to theirs and just say hey you know, we represent Ellen, you know, would Ellen be interested in producing this thing? Let's get this book out to her. Um, and, and there's, listen, there's, there, there are a number of people in the film and TV world that read a lot of books. So uh, he has, he has recently been disgraced, but there is a, uh, there's a legendary uh, producer named Scott Rudin and Scott Rudin is famous for having an army of people that would just read every book there is uh, usually before they come out, you know, they would just get all of these manuscripts from publishers and they would just take them off the table before they're ever released. So that's uh, how they get that's how they get access to these books that they make deals. Yeah, you might have noticed before. there's a lot of prestige movies that are based on books, and a lot of them have Scott Rudin's name on it. The reason he, that they have Scott Rudin's name on it is because he optioned them before they were literally before they even came out. Uh, so if you're a big writer like uh, you know Franzen or uh, or Zadie Smith or whatever else, generally your book will be optioned well before it's it's released. Um, okay. Um, okay. And then, sorry. And then like Reese Witherspoon is another one. So Reese Witherspoon has uh, a similar, a similar aspirations and she has something called Reese's book club where, you know, similar to Oprah's, but you know, in a smaller, smaller way where she aggressively options books to uh, make. So recently she made uh, little fires everywhere, which was on yep. a Hulu based on Celeste Eng's uh, uh, book. And, and I'm sure Celeste, again, she's a big writer. So, you know, every time she writes a book, somebody option will, will have optioned it before it comes out most likely. Okay. All right. So the, 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 the initial path for a writer is to make sure that they have the right agent, manager, and or uh, legal representation. And then they write, they obviously have to write a killer book in order to get that interest. It doesn't um, have to be good. It just has to be, it just has to either break through the clutter or it has to have something in it that um, that can spark interest in the creative types. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a book. It can be an article. As you know, there's lots of Vanity Fair and Vogue and you know Rolling Stone articles that have been optioned and made into movies and, uh, and TV shows. Now, is there a way to kind of stack the deck in terms of getting your work around in a way that will increase the probability that somebody notices it and picks it up? It's always about gatekeepers. So this entire this entire ecosystem is made up of gatekeepers, and there's a lot of kind of mid level people whose job it is to prevent you from getting your stuff to somebody. The way to break through gatekeepers is to have somebody who has the power to get your 
project around the gatekeeper. So the managers and the agents and, and, and lawyers, that's literally what they do. But the other way is to just know somebody famous or to have a, you know, a sister-in-law who knows somebody, you know, who knows somebody famous and get it to them. Like, you know, that, that's kind of the other way. That gets, that gets to my next question, which is going to be controversial, but it'll be, it'll equally offend all parties. So, um, but you know, I'll be very careful about how I ask it. So in terms of, you know, kind of getting your thing out there, there could be some, you know, elitism, some nepotism, uh, potentially racism, ageism, and what I call imbiism, which is in my backyard, do you have to be living in LA to do this stuff? hundred percent. So, so when I say, and when I say elitism, to be clear, like people with Ivy League backgrounds, is there, is there a bias against people who don't have them, et cetera. And, and both of us were speaking as people with that sort of a, a pedigree, right? Yeah. So, um, and so, so it could, you know, it could benefit. It might, it might, um, you know, hurt you. Um, in historically in Hollywood, being a person of color was a disadvantage. Right now, yes. is it is it an advantage? Is it still a disadvantage? So it's things like that. So, you know, if you're kind of approaching this business, what are the sorts of things that you have to watch out for? So let's start with elitism. Like, is there is that really a thing? Yeah. It, it, so all of those things are real, and you absolutely are spot on in in, in mentioning them. I mean, the reality is that that uh so the, this middle tier of gatekeepers uh almost all of them are young almost all of them live in either los angeles or london if you're you know if you're sort of international but they're generally they, they live in a very specific area of uh of the world and they have a very specific way in which they live their lives a lot of them uh, almost all of them are heavily underpaid so what that means is that they usually come from wealthy backgrounds because otherwise they wouldn't be able to have these jobs Right, yeah. it's it's very hard to live in Los Angeles on less than thirty thousand dollars a year, right? Uh, and and not only do they live in Los Angeles, they also have to go out to your know, meals and 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 those. Yes, they have expense accounts for those, but then they go out, you know, at night they date. Like it's it's not realistic uh, to do that unless you have wealthy parents or uh, or somebody who is kind of who's giving you uh, the bandwidth uh, to do that because they don't make any money until they're reasonably senior uh, in that corporate uh, hierarchy. And so the biases. Um, everybody kind of tends to want to buy what they know and they like what they like. Uh, and so as a result, when you have something that's completely different, it's much less likely that they're going to make uh, a, a move on it unless there's an explicit objective that their bosses set that basically says, we want to make more movies with uh, uh, Latino uh, themes, right? And so, and, and realistically, the only way you're going to make a great movie that appeals to uh, Latino audiences is if you actually have executives that are Latino. It's very, very difficult for non-Latino executives to meaningfully relate to a story that is set in um, in East LA where people are speaking Spanglish, right? And so when, when, when you know, when there's, you know, when, when it's kind of has... And in the same vein, to pick winners. At the end of the day, you're trying to pick winners. That's right. That's right. You need to you need to really know. How, I mean, the, the, you need to know how to uh, uh, to tell an emotional tale. And it's much easier to understand how an emotional tale is told when it's told to you than when it then then when it resonates with you than if it resonates with a theoretical uh, person who you're imagining. Um, and so having people, you know, it's it's it, and it's and it's it's a lot of things. It's it's age. It's gender. It's um, it's it's uh, it's uh, socioeconomic background. It's uh, uh, ethnicity, uh, and and also it's um, 
its uh, uh, like view of the world. Uh, so you know whether it's you know pe people who are conservative who are not willing to hear liberal voices, people who are liberal who are not willing to hear conservative voices, people who have like oh you know before JD Vance became a bit of a pariah. Basically, everybody read uh, um, uh, the, his book, right. Hillbilly Elegy, and that was like the one book that everybody talked about as like, okay, you gotta like you gotta sort of hear from conservative voices. Uh, in 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 film, if you notice how many movies and TV shows happen to be set in LA or New York, even though there's a lot of America that isn't LA or New York. And so when a movie like Napoleon Dynamite came out, this I'm now dating myself, this is back 15, 16 years ago, it was such a different, it was set in a Mor in Mormon country in uh, uh, in Utah. Um, and that the only way that a movie like that could, could, could work, I mean, it did really well because it was so spectacular, but it was made independently. And it wasn't until it made it to Sundance that somebody actually saw it and said, holy shit, we gotta buy this, which at the time was uh, MTV Films and Fox Searchlight. But like, but but that movie, as, as good as it is, nobody bought it, you know, until then, uh, because it was so weird and different because it, it didn't resonate. So like the reality is that there's there's there are plenty of senior people who are setting objectives that says, hey, we need to make movies that appeal to older people. We need to make uh, movies that appeal to people in the middle of the country. We need to make people that appeal to Chinese audiences, like all of those objectives. But it's very hard um, for the middle tier to be able to pick winners um, because all they know is what they know. Like that's just the reality of how it goes. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go off on a bit of a uh, you know a side sidetrack based on something you said because but I, I want to try to keep it uh, kind of bring us back on the path in terms of the stage of of getting through this process. Yeah. Um, you mentioned kind of a movie about uh, that, that appeals to Chinese audiences, right? So there there you know I've I've read and and I'm sure it's true that. Anything that you send over to the Chinese market, they heavily edit Correct. in order for it to kind of fit with the dictates of the, Ch the Chinese. Well, if they are at all, I mean, they, they also have a, a they have a system where um, even big Marvel movies sometimes they don't show. So, if you have a movie that is um, so, as an example, I have another anthology that I'm working on called Weird World War Three, China. Mm -hmm. Okay. That will never get made in China, and probably would never even be looked at in Hollywood because it would never. No, it's a bunch of things, Sean. Not at all. So, so being provocative and poking somebody in the eye is not a problem, as long as the budget does not require the movie to be successful in China, right? So, right. so it's, it's all you. about the budget, right? So if you make a movie for, uh, especially a documentary, you can make a documentary for a quarter million dollars, right? Like realistically, especially if you don't have to have expensive music. Um, so a documentary that's made for a quarter million dollars, which is sold to Netflix and not shown in China, Netflix not available in China, is fine, right? Like it, but but if you're making a movie that costs uh, a few hundred million dollars to make and you're expecting a billion dollars in gross box office receipts, it's very hard to do that if you don't have a Chinese release because that's a very large portion of the overall box office. Uh, in television, it's very different. Um, and so in now there's corporate relationships. So the question is, how aggressively are you poking your customer in the face. Uh, so Saudi Saudi Arabia is the other one because that's not a market at all, but there's a lot of financing that's involved uh, between uh, uh, Saudis and uh, various media companies. And some big companies are just not willing to aggressively poke them in the eye, um, whether it's the Chinese, whether it's the uh, Saudis or you know, some, some other examples in general. But, but Hollywood tends to, those are the two kind of common areas to common sort of quote unquote foes uh, to go after. And, well, and, and there's corporate, there's corporate reasons, you know, and, 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 and then they, you know, you, you, we're all aware of the Spotify Joe Rogan uh, um, 
back and forth, which has to do with, are you a platform? Or are you a publisher? You know, because you're paying for something, are you effectively a publisher? And there's actually, this happens on the, on the film side too. So when you acquire a finished product, you sometimes can hide behind the fact that, well, we didn't make it. So yes, we paid for it for distribution, but, uh, but we're not really the ones who made it. So don't worry about it. Like, it's okay if it's not really consistent with our, um, with our, uh, you know, points of view and stuff like that. It, it gets really hairy and complicated, um, uh, you know, and we can talk more about it or not, but it's probably not relevant for, uh, for the majority of your audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's the, the only other piece that I want to ask you about is the flip side of that, which is, uh, you know, if you're making objectionable content to, let's say, the, the U.S. intelligence, like, is there any influence from U.S. intelligence agencies to try to shape products that, in the past, there has been, right? In or, you know, in the right 80s and before, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, is does that still exist? And again, I don't want to go too much, too far out and branch out on this, but I'm just, I figure I'm not, I'm I'm not personally. It's fine. I'm not personally. Uh, I'm not personally. I've never encountered it personally. But I will say that uh, a good friend of mine was involved in the release of the movie, uh, the interview, uh, which was the movie that caused Sony to get hacked. And the 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 backstory there is. Uh, uh, is quite interesting because uh, all of this ended up becoming a non-story eventually. But initially, everybody was afraid to release that movie because they were afraid. So Sony got hacked very badly, yeah. and um, and and so the movie wasn't going to come out theatrically by North by North Korea. To by North Korea, exactly. Which which is everybody's enemy. No one, no one, no one's worried about offending North Korea. But uh, but what they were worried about was getting hacked by North Korea because Sony got hacked so aggressively, and so at the time. Um, so Sony decided, okay, we'll release the movie online, right? No problem. Well, the problem is there's only two ways to release a movie online. It either has to be on AWS, Amazon Web Services, or Google Cloud. And neither one was willing to host the movie because they were like, it's actually a pretty, you know, it wasn't exactly a great movie. Uh, and so they didn't want to, Netflix didn't want to release it. And neither of those two were not only not willing to release it directly, they were not willing for anybody to host it on their servers because they didn't want to get hacked. And so uh, uh, my friend's company got involved and my friend was uh, one of you guys and uh, ended up working directly with um, uh, the US government uh, to get server allocation space and, and stuff like that to get the movie well, released. And, that, and the funny thing is that two days later, Amazon, Google, everybody did release it. So now it's on Netflix. You can watch it. And, and it was it was first released on YouTube, though, right? Like on, the, on Google's platform, right? No, nope, no. It was released oh. on a website called theinterviewmovie.com, which okay. my friend I know, knows. I know, because I bought, I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I bought yeah, it. yeah. It was like um, it was like twenty bucks or something. Yeah. Just fu funny again. Funny aside, then we'll get back. I'm like way, way, way off track. A funny aside about Google. I think back in the you know early 2010s, China hacked into Google. And stole some of their their code, search algorithms, things like that. Yeah. So apparently, Google hacked back. That's <laughs> they, interesting. They basically attacked a sovereign state. And my understanding of the situation was that around the time when they eventually withdrew from China, when Sergey Brin basically threw down and and withdrew from China. Prop, prop, sounds like. So I remember that because I was at Hulu at the time. I remember that time frame. It was very very fraught experience. I didn't know about the hacking. But my my understanding of that is like you know I think the FBI got involved and things like that because the last thing you want is a is a U.S. corporation to go rogue and start a kinetic war by hacking it. So anyway, we're kind of living in interesting times. So let's get back yeah. to. I, I'm sorry to take uh, take us on this digression. But, sure. Okay, so you're a novelist. You've gotten an option. You're kind of 
in the process. Well, the other thing is you have to remember a lot of the times you're no longer involved. Like there's a very, if you're successful and it's going well, you know, generally you're not really in the mix anymore. Occasionally they'll parade you out just to sort of, so if you have some clout, they'll bring you to the pitch meetings. So the, generally it's the, it's not Netflix or Hulu that does the optioning. Right. The vast majority of the time. It's usually a producer or a studio that does the optioning. And and usually, and if it's a studio, it's usually a producer who's affiliated with the studio. So there's these things called the overall deal. An overall deal is like a holding deal where somebody like Shonda Rhimes, who's very, or JJ Abrams, they're paid a lot of money to basically sit around and generate ideas. Uh, so they're paid, you know, and so, so what ends up happening is Greg Berlanti, Shonda Rhimes, JJ Abrams, what they'll do is they'll option a bunch of stuff. And then they'll put a writer on it. They'll put an executive producer on it. They'll try to put some talent. Talent means uh, people who are on camera. So they're called above the line talent. And then those people will go and meet with Showtime, HBO, Hulu, whoever else and pitch your show. And sometimes they'll bring you into the meeting and sometimes they won't. It kind of depends on what is appealing and what the story is and what the pitch is. So and, then, actually, and then actually, if, if it actually gets optioned, if it actually gets picked up, then maybe, you know, they'll hire you as an, a consultant to kind of help with the scripts, but generally they kind of kick you out. So uh, that actually raises a question. There was a, a writer kind of sent me, sent me a question about this. Um, does charisma matter? So let's say they, they bring you into the room and you're like a human troll, like, like does it matter? It all depends. It depends if, so, so generally, yes. I mean, the, the, the pitch has to work. So something about the pitch has to be effective, but the, you know, a lot of the times the writer will just sit there and not say anything. Uh, I've, I've taken a, a number of pitches uh, which were based on well-known writers work where I knew the writer and I was excited and the writer wasn't there and the writer wasn't involved in the pitch uh, at all. It was, you know, adaptation type thing. And um, uh, but, but, but generally the question is, okay, is this appealing? Is this the kind of thing that we want? The, the biggest the biggest reason somebody will buy it is not that. The biggest reason is to get somebody else to not buy it. So the number one way in which your show will get bought is if there's a perception that somebody else is gonna is gonna snatch it away from that. It's, so, it's the hot it's the hot girlfriend problem. Yeah, hundred percent correct. So House of Cards, which was famously sold to Netflix for hundred million dollars, two seasons. You know, there, there were three other bidders, and Netflix outbid them both with more money and a bigger commitment, and most importantly for David Fincher. Um, a guarantee that they would make the full season sort of sight unseen. Uh, uh, and so, um, so, so that, that is the number one most compelling thing. But, 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 other, uh, but other than that, like general, the normal kind of pickup process, the question is, is, is this going to work? If it, if, if, it, if it is what we think it is, is it going to work? Number one, if the answer is, is, is no, then you don't want it. And then number two is, what is, it's very similar to building a product if you're a tech person, Number two is what is the likelihood that it's going to get made close to what we perceive it to be? And, and that has to do with who the, 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 the sellers are. So very famously, arguably the most successful show so far of the 21st century is Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones was an adaptation of an extremely successful uh, book, as you know, book series. Um, and he was barely involved uh, uh, in the pitching. But you know, Benioff and, and Weiss, the, the two individuals who were doing the adopting, they got paid a lot of money and there was a huge budget to make the pilot of that series. And HBO saw it and rejected it. They didn't like it. 
And then they ended up paying a lot more money to completely reshoot the pilot and do it again. And only then with the same creators and only then when it finally worked, did they decide to you know go? And it's one of the most ex expensive shows ever made, and also one of the most successful. It, uh, arguably, is HBO's big, big, uh, big, big uh, uh, piece of content for so far. Now they're making prequels and all that other stuff. So, so as a writer who has an option, how much control do you have over what happens to your baby? Very little. Very Almost little. No. I mean, if you're Stephen King, you have plenty. But if you are if you're not a writer of uh, you know who is kind of well known, you can negotiate all of that into your option. But then this means that people are less likely to to do the option, right? If it, you know if you have a veto power uh, over the scripts or whatever else, it becomes at best they give you a consulting credit on the scripts and they'll send you the scripts for feedback, but they won't necessarily have to take it. Okay, and in terms of the other question that... Uh... But, but hang on a second, Sean. There's also a big difference between scripted and unscripted. So if you've written a, 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 an unscripted story and they're making not a scripted version of it, but a documentary, then you can be you know, very actively involved because you're effectively the source, right? The source or your sources are going to be the sources. You're going to have to help them get on camera. So then you become you know, full-on producer uh, on the thing. So, so when that studio reached out to me about one of my former companies asking, you know, I guess to participate in some production and I just ignored it, I would have had some control. Well, there you, they probably wanted you to be an on-camera, just a talking head. And, and a lot of times they don't even pay for that. Yeah, that's what I figured. And it would be more trouble than it was worth. So I ignored it. Um, okay. I don't know uh, if you saw that the, there were two competing fire festival documentaries. And um, uh, I recommend watching them both. One's on Netflix, one on Hulu. They literally came out the same week. And uh, there were some incredible, uh, I won't reveal to you what it is because it's worth seeing it, but there's some incredible on-camera statements that people made. Um, yeah, like, you don't oh, want to, you don't want to be that guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, that, that will be on your, you know, that will be on your yeah. Wikipedia, to the extent that you have a Wikipedia or to the extent people Google your name, that will be on YouTube uh, first for the rest of your life, unless you become, unless you do something more notable. Yeah, what do they call that? Uh, who's, who's, the, who's the lead singer of, uh, was it Warrant? Uh, Cherry Pie, you know that you know that song. Yeah, I know the song. Sure, I yeah, don't know, yeah. remember the lead singer's name. So, so, so I think he like he did not want to be remembered for that song. So, yeah. <laughs> it's like a lot of those, like yeah, you know, one hit wonders. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. There's some it's plenty the of uh, it's, it's true Hollywood stories. Yeah, remember the VH1 behind the music? Yeah, that's that's yeah. <laughs> okay, so another another question that you um that that was raised for me when you were talking about you know as they're assessing these pitches, what, what sorts of things do they, like what metrics or criteria do they use to say, oh, that's the one I want? Because I, I imagine there's some qualitative piece. But there's yeah, that's a good question. So, 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 and this is a little, now it's a little different actually with streaming companies and traditional networks, but, but, the, but, but the framework is the same, which is, is this going to appeal to our demographic? That's the core question. Now, so, so the way that the streaming company will think about it, so a typical streaming company uh, that's sophisticated will basically say, here are the psychographic profiles of audiences that we're going after. And then you want to put kind of a check mark that says, okay, to whom does it appeal? And does it appeal in a big way? Like, will this be their favorite show? Uh, or does it appeal in a small way where they won't hate it? But you know they might kind of put it on the list. So if you if you look through the trays 
trays of these like long horizontal uh, recommendations on Netflix, right? Uh, generally, there's a little description as to why it is that you like it. Oh, you, you, Sean, I know you love romantic uh, comedies uh, with Jennifer Lopez. And because you love romantic comedies with Jennifer Lopez, here are a bunch of others with Jennifer Garner and others, you know, that you would love to watch. In my case, I like more sophisticated fare. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love my Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> Um, so, so, so like, you know, because you like, you know, you like smart British uh, crime shows, whatever, like, you know, that's generally kind of how they do it. And so th there's the traditional demographics, which is, you know, men, women, different ages. Uh, and then there's psychographics, which is people who are into sci-fi, people who are into anime, people who are uh, depressed, uh, people who are, you know, who really appreciate dark humor, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. So, so to them, so, so generally they'll think about it and they'll say, okay, is this something that is, that fits, you know, that, that fits, that, that delights one of the demos. That's one dimension. Another one is brand. So FX uh, is a network that has a very strong brand. There's this very strong perception uh, to FX executives as to what FX stands for and what it doesn't stand for. And so the question is, you know, does it fit within the FX family of shows? Is this something that we can be proud of? Uh, another one is, um, um, uh, uh, is just generally like, how big can it be? You know, like, what is the reason we're going to make this? Is this going to be a, like a show that everyone's talking about, you know, a, a water cooler type thing, uh, or, you know, maybe it's going to be a, maybe not, but it's going to be like Fleabag is a great example of, you know, one of the greatest shows made, um, but it didn't have a huge audience, but it got like every award that possible, uh, it, it, because it was, uh, you know, when it came to like, the connoisseurs of television, all of them loved uh, Fleabag. Um, and so for Amazon, even though it didn't have a huge viewership, it was, you know, it was a, it was a big win. Now, Marvel's Mrs. Mizell is an example of a show that is both a big audience show and a critically acclaimed show. That's very rare. It doesn't happen very frequently, but, you know, nowadays it's kind of happening more uh, the, than it used to. Um, so, that's generally kind of how they think about it. And then, you know, budget, you know, it, it, it's a, if it's a period piece, uh, with a big cast that can be extremely expensive, whereas um, uh, a show like Atlanta or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, they're expensive now, but in the first season, they were reasonably inexpensive uh, to execute. Uh, some of them, you know, British shows tend to have like one writer who writes all of the episodes that can be a lot less expensive. In, in, Brit in England, they don't have writer's rooms the way they do in the U.S., so that's a lot less expensive to do than something with a big writer's room. That's so probably you know, why, just, it's probably why they have fewer flops, I think. <laughs> <laughs> they have in the, but they also do only six episode seasons typically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, how does that play into? So again, I I, made, I just made a statement without any um, data to back it up whatsoever, right? It was just a gut gut feeling. But uh, writers' rooms and you know as as, as these productions are being created, there's you know, there are a lot of thoughts, right? A lot of people kind of injecting their thoughts. Like cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. 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 How does that, um, again, I'm, I'm going a little, little digression, but I'll, I'll bring it back. How, how does that impact work product? And, and for like a, a novelist who doesn't want to see his product kind of his or her product completely, uh, turned into a hat and into hash, like What's that dynamic like? Is it generally the biggest? The biggest driver of 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 something that's the biggest driver of something that's good, and something, or at least that that with the script, you know, like for for a television show, different from a movie. For a television show, the biggest variable uh, of what's going to be what's going to work and not work is the script. 
for a movie, it's a little different because it depends on, you know, production and casting is really important. For a TV show, everything lives on the page. So obviously you can still mess it up with really good scripts, but generally, but if you, but you definitely will not have a successful show if your scripts suck, like a hundred percent, it will fail. Um, and, and the way, and yes, there's writer's rooms. Usually there's six to eight writers in a writer's room. Um, uh, the biggest driver of a successful writer's room versus not a successful driver's room is the showrunner. So the showrunner is the, is also known as executive producer. This is a person who is in charge of all the different elements uh, of making a TV show. In television, writer is king. In movies, director is king. Um, so a good example of a successful showrunner is Mike Shore. So Mike Shore is, uh, was a senior writer on The Office, and then he went on to co-create Parks and Rec. He then went on to co-create um, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, uh, The Good Place. Uh, and he is somebody who has been very, very good at, at running comedy uh, writer's rooms, which are very unruly. Uh, com comedy people tend to be, you know, they tend to be all over the place. Uh, uh, and also jokes are hard, like, you know, writing good jokes and also smart scripts at the same time, which is what Mike Shore's known for, is really hard. So Mike is very in demand. Like, if Mike Shore is pitching you a TV show, you're just begging him to take your money. Uh, that's kind of how it goes. Um, and then there's others who might have written a great comedic script, but who have no idea how to write a writer's room, right? And all of a sudden it gets away from them. And so you've probably seen some comedies where you notice that in season two or three, it really starts slipping. And the reason that's the case is because the, the showrunners are just not capable of, of you know, writing the scripts all themselves because they have to do all these other things and and they're not able to really like quality control and make sure that the scripts are excellent and, and also like there's a big difference between a, a network show which is like 22 episodes a season and a cable or um hulu netflix sh uh, show which is more of like you know eight to ten eight to twelve episodes a season because you can just it's much easier to have uh, quality uh when you have fewer scripts so almost never do you see a, a comedy a network comedy where every show, every episode is good. It's just impossible. Hopefully your worst episode are just not terrible. That's your kind of goal. All right. Going back to back on track, you go to these pitch meetings, you do the pitch, they run it through the metrics they have, look at different psychographic profiles. You know, if it's a high, high penetration means kind of big bang in one demographic, or they might have low penetration, but across a broad range of demographics. Either way, the movie kind of gets... Um, let's just say it gets a green light. How, how does that process work? So the production company, right, is the one that's pitching to the distributor. Is that? And then so what happens is, what happens is you sell your option. Then yep. the production company has this time period during which they kind of staff it. So they package it. They put together a team to uh, bring it to market, which either happens or it doesn't. The majority of the time it doesn't happen, and the option reverts back to you. And then you know you're shit out of luck. Good luck with you know with hopefully reselling it if you're lucky or, or more likely just writing or, your next book. Yeah. Maybe they'll extend it uh, if you're willing to let them. Um, uh, the set, Generally, I would, I would be, if they, if they've made no movement and it's been 18 months, I would not extend it because uh, you know, they're just freezing your, your work uh, for you. You can tell them, listen, keep selling it, but I'm not giving you the option. So I'll give you the option if you sell it. But I, in the meantime, I reserve the right to, to give it to somebody else. So, so again, like the, the percentages are horribly bad. So I, I just want your audience to be aware of just how low likelihood is that, some, you know, the, the craft of writing is one that is individual. So it's you 
and your typewriter. Th that's all. That's that's the only thing that's preventing you from you know getting it out there. And you can self-publish nowadays, right? You don't need a publisher. Um, uh, when it comes to television and film, it just doesn't work the same way. And it's uh, it's it's a frustrating process, and and it's uh, it's rough. Uh, so so you 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 option it. Best case scenario, they put together a package, they take it to market, they start selling it to buyers. And a buyer is a network, whether it's a digital network or a traditional uh, network. Um, if you're lucky, uh, they'll buy it. Now, what does it mean when they buy it? It means virtually the same thing as optioning, as the studio optioning it, which is that they basically say, we're going to pay you, uh, the production company now, we're going to pay you to write a script. So what they now have done is they've taken the ability of anybody else to buy it off the table. So they'll pay the production company to get a script to them. If they like the script, they'll maybe ask for more scripts. If they like those, they'll shoot, uh, you know, sometimes Netflix or uh, Hulu or Disney Plus will go straight to series if it's really, really promising, uh, or if it's the kind of show that requires a big production. So you have to build sets and you have to get costumes and all that stuff. And it's just not economical to shoot a pilot because if you shoot a pilot, you have to then strike all of that stuff before you decide whether it's green, you, you know, you, you green light it and you end up spending, you know, three, $4 million. Um, uh, that's kind of a wasted, uh, wasted money. Uh, but generally they shoot a pilot. And if the pilot is, if they like the pilot, then they'll order to series. Uh, if they don't like the pilot, uh, then again, you're shit out of luck. So there's all these gates. So there's, there's the, you know, does your book get optioned? Does it get packaged? Is there a network buyer? Does does the network buyer like the script? Uh, does the network buyer uh, want to greenlight a pilot? Is the pilot any good? Meaning the network likes it. Then it goes to series. So those are kind of the steps, uh, all of which are, there's a significant fall off uh, in all cases. Now, how does the money flow to the writer in this case? So the first the first is the option. There's some money that flows to the writer. Yeah. Uh, what What's the next stage where more money would- Generally, there's stages. And, and I'm not an expert in exactly how those agreements are, are done. Um, um, there's a number of lawyers that can answer that question more directly than I can. But generally, any time, all of the phases that I just described, the writer gets paid something. And if the writer um, is uh, has a good representation, they also have what's called a piece of what's called the back end uh, of the show or the movie, meaning if the movie does really well uh, or the TV show does really well, they get a piece of the underlying um, intellectual property. So, so like the old school writers, uh, Grishams of the world, um, uh, Stephen King's have made a lot of money uh, from their movies, uh, which did well in the box office. And they actually had a piece or have a piece of the, uh, underlying um, uh, movie rights. There are a lot of writers who don't get a piece of the of the back end. So essentially, they just get paid out, and uh, you know the thing just keeps getting made uh, without them. If it's a if it's a TV show, not a movie, the good news you have as a writer is that you are the generator of the intellectual property, right? So if there's a season two and there's no sequel, they need you to give them ideas as to how to make it, unless the you know the showrunner wants to go in a different path. But if you are, if you have good lawyers, they will have negotiated that the book, that the stuff has to be based on your intellectual property. And if they veer off, they need your approval, if you will. So a good example of that is Hands Made Tale is based on a you know, very, very famous novel by Margaret Atwood. They had to keep her involved for season two and three, which are now like on a, you know, they, they, they've, they've completely veered off uh, the book because the book ended in season season one is the book and then they kind of keep going uh beyond that okay 
All right. So you get to this stage, let's say, you know, the, in, in the extremely unlikely case that the pilot is accepted, then what? Uh, generally, they'll hire you as a writer to be a consultant. So they'll they'll basically say you can hang around the writer's room and give some notes and advice. Um, or uh, they'll send you the scripts as new scripts are being written. So generally what happens if a pilot is, um, is, uh, is greenlit, uh, they're now writing the season and then they're going to start shooting. And so generally as a writer, uh, and the other thing is like just personal relationships. If you're kind of grumpy and annoying, regardless of what the, the lawyers do and negotiate, they can always tell you to go fuck yourself. Right. And then you could say, what are you going to do? Stop the whole thing and not get paid. So, so like, if they don't like working with you, they'll figure out ways to not work with you. But if you, but even if you don't have any legal right to for approvals or whatever else, if they like you and they get along with you and they think your ideas are good, they'll include you. These are all human beings, um, and no one, no one means to be mean to a writer. That's never the intent. It's just that sometimes there's a lot of egos involved, and uh, and it just doesn't, you know, doesn't really work out really well. I mean, there's there's also counter examples. So, so Tony Kushner, the famous playwright, he has worked. Um, I think on four different films now with Steven Spielberg because they just have a great working relationship, including films like West Side Story, where why would Tony Kushner write West Side Story script? But he did because Steven loves working with him. Okay, that's definitely helpful. All right, um, I'm trying to think if there's any other questions that you typically get that I didn't, I didn't cover. I mean, I, I got other random questions. Actually, here's a random question. Log lines, is that still a thing? Like, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it's X, definitely a thing. X meets Y, is that still part of? Well, I mean, it's the, the, it's less hokey now because there's more prestige in television and movies than there used to be. Uh, but yeah, log lines are still a thing um, because you want to you be, it's an elevator pitch, right? It's the same thing as business, right? You want to be able to describe something and, and hook somebody. Uh, X meets Y, just for, for your audience who doesn't know, it means like one movie and another movie, usually they have nothing to do with each other. And when you say X meets Y, somebody's somebody's head's supposed to explode. Like, oh my God, I've never heard that before. Uh, so in your case, it would it would be a Jennifer Lopez romantic comedy, maybe meets Napoleon Dynamite. Um, yeah, or, or like Cthulhu, something like that. You know. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> All uh, right. Um, any other questions that folks typically? Well, like Mash is a good Mash is a good example of that in your world, right? The military world. Mash was so brilliant because. They took something that was like hardcore war stuff, right? In 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 in, in, in and they brought it into like comedy. Uh, you know, you, you at the time the pitch would have been like Catch Twenty Two, you know, in Korea or whatever else, right? Like you know, you had to. It was so different and so wildly, uh, 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 wildly not consistent with the mainstream uh, that it was. It was. It had a huge hook on its own. You know, uh, like almost immediately. And what are the probabilities we're talking here? We're talking like sub one percent, right? Something like that. Yeah. From yeah. from from a well, from from a novel to a movie is, um, you know, if a novel is published, that's probably well. Gary Steingart is a good example. So Gary Steingart has written, I think, five extraordinary successful novels. Every single one of them has been optioned, and as far as I know, not a single one has been made into a movie or a TV show yet. Um, so it's 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 uh, a lot of it just has to do with the, like execution. It, it's just it, there's a risk associated with execution where no matter how good the concept was, um, if whoever is empowered with translating it from the page to the screen can't quite handle it or doesn't quite have the vision, um, it doesn't work out. Like the, 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 there's one of my favorite books of all time is The Confederacy of Dunces. 
that book has been optioned and has had everybody from Will Ferrell to, I can't remember who else, uh, attached to Star, and it still hasn't been made. Um, I think there might have been an animated version or something like that that came out. Dune, as you know, has had multiple versions, and it wasn't until the recent one that you know they got any sort of decent reviews. Tron is another example. These are huge, huge properties, right? Um, Yiddish Policeman's Union, Michael Chabon's book, again, like there's been multiple versions that have been announced and whatever else, and there hasn't been one made yet. So it's it, it's um, it's it's tough, even when you have literally all the, you know, the deck is fully stacked in your favor. It's still really hard because execution does matter a great deal. All right. I don't have any any further questions. I think we really, I think you covered this backwards, forwards, up, down. I mean, this is really helpful and I hope the audience awesome. uh, finds it helpful as well. So uh, we're going to take a break now help. and we're going to go talk to our, talk about our next topic, which uh, will be one of my perennial, I shouldn't say favorites because we're talking about, you know, uh, bad things, but uh, we're going to discuss Russia and the Ukraine situation. So talk to you soon. All right.